102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. Over 40 million people are caught in modern slavery worldwide. One out of four of them are children. It is a $150 billion industry and is bigger than a drug trade because each person can be purchased more than once. How does it exist and thrive? What can we do about modern slavery? Today I'm talking with Andrew Wallace, CEO of Unseen, based in London, England. He will share the state of modern slavery, how to spot it, and how Unseen is working to eradicate modern slavery. Thank you for joining me on Spark today, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. How do you define modern slavery? I think there are two ways of defining it. One is, and I, I could rattle off the, the, the legal definitions framed around the Paloma Protocol, but I, I have a working definition, which I think captures the essence of what we're talking about. And modern slavery for me is a commodity trade. It's an illicit commodity trade where the the commodity is a human being that is bought, sold, and exploited for vast profits with little chance of the perpetrators facing prosecution and little chance of freedom for the victims. Can you provide some statistics or demographics of whom or which countries it most impacts? Sure. I think I would start by saying that there isn't a country in the world that isn't touched by this issue. For example, from the UK's perspective, last year we saw uh, victims from over 100 different nationalities that were identified within the United Kingdom itself, uh, along with UK nationals. The the global estimates are more like guesstimates, and these figures are always going to be south of what the true numbers are. But the the current estimation is that um, in excess of 40 million people find themselves in situations of modern slavery, and that... If we look at just on sheer numbers, lots of the developing world is where we find the biggest numbers of of victims, so across Asia and Africa. But that's not to lose sight of the fact that every country has this problem. Every country also has its own nationals that are exploited. And is it rising with the turmoil, let's say, in certain countries where it's torn by civil war, I think there's a number of there's a number of factors that that come into play, and the reason I started with the definition that I started with is that fundamentally what we're talking about is an economic crime, but it's it's also economics that creates the vulnerability for a lot of individuals in the developing world. They are looking to economically either advance themselves or support their families, and that places them in a position of vulnerability because when your options are facing you are grinding poverty, grinding poverty, and grinding poverty. And someone says, hey, uh, if you were to move to this country, I can get you a job and it will pay this. In the context in which you're living, that is a fortune. Not only can you, you think you can uh, live, and, but you can also support your family. So there's an economic driver. Uh, there's also uh, drivers from persecution. There's drivers from conflict. Increasingly, there'll be drivers, uh, push factors from climate change. And then also the huge disparity between the developed and the developing world in terms of how we broadcast the wealth around the world. 
and, and people say, you know, I now have the means to move, uh, you know, whether that's legal or illegal, um, and I want, I want a piece of the pie. On the other side of the equation in, in the developed world is this demand, and, and we have an insatiable appetite for cheap goods and cheap services and cheap labor. And so we, we create this ecosystem by which people can be exploited. And the horrible thing is that exploiters um, are, are really adept at you know, looking at the model and working out how they can take their commodity, a human being, and absolutely uh, maximize the exploitation and, and the financial returns on. So it sounds like one of the key drivers is the fact that we want cheap products and cheap labor. The fact that we're willing to take advantage of that situation, does that then perpetuate this entire issue that's going on around slavery or taking advantage of people who are just in impoverished situation? Sure. So if you if you go back to that that global figure of you know how many people are, are, are caught up in this problem, the, the biggest percentage are caught up in situations of forced labor, and the vast majority of those are found in the world's supply chains. So what's happened in the last four years is globalization, and th- in some ways that's been a good thing. It's lifted billions of people out of poverty, but it's also plunged millions into positions of exploitation. It's driven because, like I said, and, and you said in the question, there is this demand for cheap goods, services, and labor. And whether that's at an individual level or at a corporate level, uh, and even a government level, it, it's the thing that fuels the economy and this illicit trade that we're calling modern slavery um, and human trafficking. But what I was going to say was, I think that there's, there's two levels to this as well. So you know, when I'm working with corporates, I start from the position of you are um, definitely caught by this regardless of what sector you're in. I absolutely guarantee that you will have some, some touch point with, with modern slavery uh, within you know, the supply chains and, and the subcontracting and, and uh, the purchasing that you're undertaking as a business. But for us as individuals, you know, if, if we uh, are wearing clothes and we're eating food and, and using el- electronics, then probably we are connected to 40 or 60 people that find themselves in situations of forced labor exploitation. This is it about raising awareness of the fact that, or what we're using and the fact that the companies need to make sure their supply chains are transparent then? that they're not employing labor that's not legal or uh, the fact that we're using, let's say we're wearing fast fashion that probably wasn't produced in a very ethical manner. Yeah. And it isn't just fast fashion. So I think um, even though we have this demand for cheap goods, services and labor, I've been in production factories around the world where coming off the same production line, you will have, you know, what we would call fast fashion apparel, but also high-end apparel as well. So I think the question is, what are the circumstances in which goods are being manufactured and being produced? So that's the question there. So I think, yes, I think there are majority areas that contribute to this, this, and fast fashion is one of those. You know, it's not only terrible for the environment, but it's also terrible for the individuals that end up in a forced labor situation. But there are also fast fashion brands that are, you know, really leading the charge in terms of trying to address these issues. But awareness is key. And awareness is about, you know, the general public saying questions like asking the the businesses that they're giving up their dollars and their pounds and their euros to, to say, okay, so tell me about the circumstances in which these goods were made and manufactured. 
And I want alignment. I don't want to be spending my money with a company that is not taking these issues seriously and, and dealing with them. And for corporations, it's saying, okay, the issue is not if it happens, but but when it happens, what do we do? And how proactively are we looking for it? I don't believe the vast majority of corporate corporations want to be entangled up in forced labor, but I think they, they don't know how to start and, and how to deal with it. And, and the way that we start and deal with it is through collaboration. And, and part of the piece of the pie is, is that awareness raising, you know, from the board level down. And increasingly, we're seeing legislation around the globe that is requiring businesses to, to look at this issue um, and, and take this issue seriously. But it's also up to the consumers to say we are only willing to buy products where there's a traceable supply chain. And, we're, and we want some kind of certification that shows that the company is using a traceable or transparent supply chain. And we know where these products are coming from. If you have some kind of certification process for where the products are coming from and whether they're ethically sourced, wouldn't that make a difference? It would, but it, it's super complicated. So say we take a cell phone, mobile phone. There are about between four and 600 different components that all would need certifying before you could say, okay, I have a cell phone that is uh, free from uh, forced labor exploitation. You know, I can guarantee that it's been made in, in good circumstances. So there's a level of complexity to it. And I think probably the, f- the first staging post is about requiring companies, like you said, to be transparent about what they're doing. And we, we want companies to say, look, this is what we found. Because I think it's probably, you know, it's, it's one of the the worst kept secrets. We know forced labor exploitation is taking place. We know consumers don't want to purchase those goods. We are some way off from having some sort of certification process um, uh, around that because of the complexities of of items that are made. Even a t-shirt, you have to take it all the way back to the raw goods. And topically at the moment, we're looking at the problems in Xinjiang province in China around cotton and and the the exploitation of Uyghurs. But just tracing the journey from the cotton that is picked in the field to the finished product that's on the shelves is a really, really convoluted journey. Um, And you have to verify the whole of that journey before you can say this item is, in quotes, slave-free. But I've never advised sort of saying that because of the, the multitude of problems. What we require is companies taking that proactive action and dealing with it, and then being honest and transparent with its consumers about what the problems are that it's faced. And increasingly, those forward-leaning companies recognizing that they can talk about the problems that they're facing and, and what they're doing, what they've found, and how they've made remediation and restitution in those situations. Because they are up against illicit traders that are looking to profit and looking to insert themselves into the existing business models and exploit those situations. Right. But if you make sure that each touch point has been verified right along the way, or the people who are sourcing the labor or the products to you, you know, can show some kind of transparency of where it's coming from, it would certainly, I mean, just having a process, right, of making sure that all the checkpoints been verified would certainly make a bigger difference than saying, oh, I, we can't control all the various components that are involved and we can only do so much. And I think that's part of the challenge because when you think about how many children are involved, creating these products is a little bit disconcerting because no one is really looking at where it's coming from and who's making it. Yeah, sure. And I think a multi-pronged approach to this. So you're right. It's it's on the behalf of the consumer, you know, whether that's an individual or an organization or a business 
you know, to, to ask those questions and to ask for that, that evidence in terms of you know, the, the provenance of the goods, there's a role for government in to legislate smartly um, around these things. And increasingly, we're seeing things like mandatory human rights due diligence legislation coming up. We've seen legislation, say, in California, SB 657, Transparency and Supply Chain Legislation. Um, in the UK, we've had the Modern Slavery Act. In Australia, there's been a Modern Slavery Act. So there's, there's a role for legislators to legislate smartly. And then there's a role for investors in corporations to say, uh, you know, just like you show due diligence around other risk areas, explain, find it, fix it, and report in terms of, of what is going on so that consumers can have confidence in, in the companies that they are, they are trading with. But let's not let perfection be, you know, at the expense of, of doing these things. This has been a 40-year journey in terms of allowing forced labor exploitation to come rolling back. It is gonna, it's going to take a while for us to, to deal with these problems. But I think when you've got that intersect between consumers and, and legislators and investors, there's a role for the media, there's a role for this podcast in terms of raising the awareness of the problems that are going on. And there's a role for civil society uh, and the, the, the not-for-profits uh, in all of this. We need this societal response to what is a really, really complex problem. Yes. On the ground level of the United Kingdom... It sounds like there's a combination of people in modern slavery transported from a country, let's let's say a developing country, as well as citizens that live there that are held in slavery. Can you talk about what's happening in each situation? You know, what we're seeing in, in the UK is no different in, in any country in that, I, that you will see what we, you know, it's technically called human trafficking, the movement of somebody from one place to another. It doesn't necessarily have to cross an international boundary. And you see the exploitation of, of that country's citizens as well. So last year in the UK, we identified in excess of 10,000 potential victims in the United Kingdom, um, and they went into the UK's national referral mechanism. We, like I said, we saw in excess of 100 na uh, nationalities, but the vast majority were from either Eastern Europe um, or Vietnam. But at number uh, four or five in terms of the, the number of victims that were identified were UK nationals. When we segment that down further, when, uh, when it comes to children, we saw that UK nationals were right at the top of the chart in terms of the numbers of, of victims that have been exploited. So I think it is a problem that is both, that comes from other countries, but it's also a problem that is here. And I think that it holds true, you know, whatever country that, that we're looking at. In the UK, we see about a 50-50 split in terms of, if you crudely split it, in terms of forced labor exploitation and sexual exploitation. But we also see domestic servitude. Uh, we see forced criminality. And we see very little, one is one too many, in terms of, of organ trafficking. The, you know, the full suite of the known uh, types of labor uh, and sexual exploitation uh, are on display. And I think as I look across the globe, I think the same is true, that we we have certain countries that focus uh, and give more primacy to one type of exploitation versus another. So certainly across Europe, that there is a, a an over-focus at the moment on sexual exploitation, but increasingly there is also a recognition that forced labor is a problem across Europe. If I look at the US, there has historically been a real focus on sexual exploitation uh, and particularly sexual exploitation of, of minors. But as uh, uh, and I think it holds true as we look for it, we find it as I think as 
there's greater investigation and understanding of how forced labor uh, works within uh, with the economy there, then we, we start to find victims in, in that whole process. It's multinational. It is not discriminated when it comes to age or race or sex. sex. Traffickers look for people that are vulnerable to exploitation. And I think the thing that concerns me are at the start of 2021 in, and we're coming or we're still dealing with the output from a, a global pandemic and, and the economic shock that is going to follow that is that that is going to place more and more people in, vul- in vulnerable situations. And I think we will see the curtailing of travel um, internationally. I think we will see more and more exploitation of countries' nas- own nationals. Uh, as the the economy shudders and quakes, um, and you know people become more desperate for economic viability, they then become vulnerable, vulnerable uh, and are preyed upon. Those from other countries that are entering into the United Kingdom. It sounds like it's the cultural and language barriers that are preventing them from escaping the situation. It, yes, it, it is in part, and I think it's also the psychological ba- the shackles that hold them as well. Again, you know, if you, if you're in a country and you you can't speak the language, if your exploiter is telling you, good reason, if you're found, you will be uh, put in a detention centre and then you will be uh, deported back to the country with a criminal record, or they will show you via a mobile phone a picture of your family that was taken yesterday and saying if you step out of line or, or try and flee this situation, your family will get it in the, in the neck, or they will encounter uh, physical violence or, as a means of control. And when you can't, in, in your native tongue, ask for help, or in some circumstances where you've come from a country where law enforcement is you know, at worst complicit and at best turns a, a blind eye to the problem, that sense of isolation increases and grows for the, the means of control. Um, increase now. When you, also, when you add to that, on top is the use of technology as a means of control and a means of recruitment. You know, you create the perfect environment for people to be hidden away. And then finally, on top of that, as we're seeing around the globe, an increasing sort of hostile rhetoric and actions towards migrants. That again feeds into the narrative of if you're going to speak out, you will be treated as a criminal rather than being treated as a victim. Yes, I can see that. Are the people who are involved in the modern slavery aspect, are they organized crime or is it more like individuals and groups that are committing this? It's it's really varied. So the definition of organization is two people working together. And uh, you know, we've had cases here in the UK where it is almost like a mom and pop operation. I can think of one example where it was the grandmother back in Romania that was recruiting the girls and it was the father and son in the UK that were receiving the girls thinking they were coming for one job and then finding themselves being sold into sexual exploitation. And not a high level of sophistication other than you know, a, a trusting granny and you know, the, the tantalizing uh, offer of, of work in, in order to support the family uh, of individuals that were in extreme poverty. At the other end of the spectrum, yes, highly sophisticated, sophisticated organized criminal um, activity uh, spanning continents, often on a what we call a distributed model, so not sort of Don Corleone and, and, and mafia type, but lots of organized criminal gangs working together in terms of the harboring, the transportation, the exploitation of individuals across continents. Um, and we have examples say, of victims traveling from Vietnam to the UK, 
the journey of exploitation is five years in length uh, across multiple countries with an individual being exploited and increasingly under the control of their traffickers all the way through to the UK when they end up in criminal exploitation in the production of cannabis or in uh, nail bars and beauty salons. Are there drugs involved in many of these situations? That's something that's certainly from a UK perspective is changing. If we'd had this conversation five years ago, I would have said we, we see no evidence of the use of drugs either as a means of control or, or as a means of numbing the, the horrors of, yeah, in terms of an individual. I think it goes without saying, if you're prepared and it's organized criminality to do traffic human beings and exploit human beings, then you're also prepared to do probably guns, drugs, uh, counterfeit, all the different types of illicit trade. It's part of a broader thing. In terms of when it comes to victims, we are starting to see the use of um, alcohol, both as a control means, um, as people prey on particularly the homeless. So people that find themselves in homeless situations, both as a, as a means of control and a means of luring them into that. And then increasingly, we are seeing victims who are um, either using alcohol and, and some drugs as, as a means of, of numbing. Um, and that's a recent sort of trend that we've seen in the last five years. And I think, and somewhat anecdotally, and we haven't done a lot of research on this yet, but I think what we're also seeing in parallel with that is the increase in the horrific violence that is meted out against traffickers. Now, that may be because there's greater awareness of what is going on. Um, therefore, you have to sort of up the ante in terms of the control mechanisms. But also in the UK context, we launched the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline three and a half years ago and seeing high percentages of calls coming directly from victims. I know in the US, you have the National Trafficking Hotline as well. And so those means by which victims can potentially reach out and ask for help are there and are growing. Therefore, in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that the, the methodology of control and the brutality of control increases. How is Unseen working to address modern slavery in the UK and abroad? We have a, a five-fold approach that all intersects. So we work directly with victims that are identified within the United Kingdom. We're part of what's called the National Referral Mechanism. So we provide accommodation and outreach support to victims that are identified and entered into the National Referral Mechanism. And then we also have a, a reintegration service for those that have gone through the National, Re National Referral Mechanism uh, to help them progress with their lives uh, and move on from the, the horrors of what they've experienced. We work with all the major statutory agencies, what we call the blue light agencies, so that's law enforcement, whether that's at local force level, regional force level, or, or with our national crime agency and border force, with health professionals, all those sort of agencies that would potentially come into contact with victims. We work alongside them in training and equipping them, and, and together sort of collaborating in terms of how we can work on those issues. As I said, we run the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline. Last year, we, we had modern slavery cases that were fed into every single police force area of the United Kingdom and, and had touch points with 54 different other countries as well. We also increasingly work with businesses, helping them tackle their modern slavery issues, both in their supply chains and, and helping businesses pivot so that they're both aware of the problem and are developing the policies and the practices to tackle those problems. 
And we take all of that information and then work with government and governments around the world in terms of what does it mean to have smart legislation, policies and practices. So we are informed practitioners and then we try and be um, constructive collaborators with all those different sectors uh, in order to uh, reach our mission, which is, is actually ending modern slavery. How can we spot modern slavery in our communities? I think the first thing I would say is I can run through some of the indicators uh, with people, but often it is something almost sort of as fleeting as a gut feeling that a situation is just wrong. I think sometimes, you know, we say to people uh, when they say, should I call them on the helpline? I've just got a gut feeling. We say, yes, the issue isn't whether you're right or wrong, but often your gut will tell you that something's wrong. In terms of sort of specifics to look for, individuals, um, how do they present? Do they present fearful, unwilling to engage with you? Are they dressed appropriately for the situation in which they're in? Do they have access to their papers? Are they under the control of another individual? Are they even aware where they, where they are at? Are they trained for the job that they're doing? If you try and talk with them, you know, do they engage or do they, do they withdraw? Each of those in and of themselves, and there's many more, but those, there's a thread that runs through all of them, is, is an individual isolated to an extent where it just doesn't seem natural? Do they fit into the circumstances in, in which they're presenting? We've done some training with banks in terms of when people come in to open bank accounts, that individual that is opening the bank account or they, you know, they don't speak English, somebody else is translating for them and they appear to be under that control. It may be perfectly innocent, but to be aware that that's one possible presenting indicator and just to be curious and just to ask that additional question or if not able to do that, to, to report in terms of, of your suspicions enables us to to help reach that barrier that is uh, surrounding those individuals. They can also appear malnourished, they can appear underfed, they can have uh, bruising, physical marks uh, around that. And so I think it is, my, my plea to the listeners is, is be curious, to follow your gut instinct um, and to report what you see because you may have the final piece of the jigsaw. Is that house that you're living next door to, are the comings and goings um, at strange hours? Something just doesn't add up and it's, in, in a UK context, we often joke and say, let's get rid of our Britishness of, of being very reserved and not saying anything and, and speaking up. We have these tools like the UK's Modern Slavery Helpline or the, or the US National Helpline where you can report those things um, safely um, and the, the people that you're reporting to you know, deal with this in day in, day out. And if you're wrong and it, it's, it's nothing, great. But what if you were right? And what if you followed your gut instinct and said, okay, yeah, something's not right here. And that ultimately led to somebody's freedom. That is an amazing thing that you've done. Yes. Thank you for raising our awareness. And thank you for joining me on Spark today, Andrew. Pleasure.